1: It's that time of year again. There's a nip in the air, the holidays are in full swing, and you are halfway through another academic year. And that means Site 2022 is right around the corner. Fear not, Behind the Knife has got you covered. We've got over 28 high-yield Site review episodes and our trusty companion book available on Amazon. Everything you need to dominate the Site. Don't forget to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org where you can easily access all of our podcasts and videos, register for free CME, and sign up for the BTK newsletter. And be sure to keep an eye out for our comprehensive oral board review material, which is due out in early 2022. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Behind the Knife, please leave us a five-star review. Now, take a deep breath. You've got this
2: all right and welcome back to the second part of the absite trauma series Um, once again we are joined by uh, dr. Matthew Martin who's gonna um, take us through the second half of the trauma so uh, thank you dr. Martin for joining us again and we also uh, have one of our colleagues here at Madigan uh, John Kuckelman who will be helping with the second part of trauma and critical care
3: thanks Kevin glad to be here all right uh,
4: dr. Martin take it away okay so blunt abdominal trauma Uh, The evaluation. I think most of the patients are evaluated with now a a FAST exam plus minus a CT scan. So real quickly, on the FAST exam, what are we looking for? And this is the the focused abdominal sonography for trauma. Right. So you're looking at the kidney-liver interface, the spleen. Well, what are we looking for? Oh, you're looking for free fluid. Good. And just remember, the ultrasound is only looking for free fluid in the abdomen or... Where else do you look for fluid besides oh, the abdomen? At the pericardium. Or the pericardial window. Good. And what is that fluid? Um,
2: well, I guess we don't know exactly, but the concern is that it's. What could it be? Uh, blood or succus.
4: Blood succus or urine? Blood succus or urine, All right? So compared to a CT scan, uh, we got to talk about the pros and cons. Which one is more sensitive? Um, a CT scan. Good. Uh, although a fast exam is reasonably sensitive especially for the pericardial view which one's more specific the uh, ct scan is also more specific yeah the ct scan is much more specific because it'll actually tell you what's injured Um, the fast will not tell you what organ is injured it'll just tell you there's bleeding and what's the big weakness of the fast exam in terms of false positives false negatives um I, i guess i think of two that come to my head but uh
2: User dependence and uh, mo- the Assum- body habitus of a patient. Assuming the
4: user knows what they're doing, I, I mean, as a test, is oh. it false positives or false negatives? Uh, it's false negatives. Good. So, so the point is you have an unstable patient and you have a negative fast that still has not ruled out that the source is the abdomen. Um, okay. Abdominal seat belt sign. Yeah. What are you concerned about?
1: Uh, I'm concerned about
4: uh, a small bowel injury, and we're concerned about pancreas injury. Good. And plain and simple. If they give you a question with seatbelt sign, they're heading towards a usually a bowel injury, sometimes a pancreatic injury. Okay, so just blunt abdominal trauma, what are the most common injuries? Uh, blown abdominal trauma would be your so solid organ
1: injuries, so spleen, liver.
4: Good, um, solid organ injuries. And what are the most common missed injuries?
1: Uh, uh, Holoviscus, a small bowel.
4: Holoviscus would be one. Uh, pancreatic then, and injuries. And then probably pancreas. Yeah. Good. Okay, so management of solid organ injury. Uh, I think this is something probably most people are comfortable with because we do it a lot. So solid organ injury and they're hemodynamically unstable. OR. Operative, or IR. Operative intervention. Oh, well, if they give it to you on the ab site, or the answer is operating room. Um, if you get a CT scan that has free fluid and you see no solid organ injury. Uh, so I would think about uh, um, a hollow viscous injury. Good. And that's a hollow viscous injury until proven otherwise. And again, if, if they give you that on the ab site, I think they're heading towards you should be exploring that patient. Okay, so now you have a CT scan and a stable patient, and it shows a solid organ injury. Just what are your principles of managing that person?
1: Uh, so principles of management would be, uh, you know, uh, admitting to a monitored bed, to make sure they're in the ICU. You can non-operatively manage them, watch them, trend their hematocrits, um, grade their injury. Okay. And what would what
4: would make you take them to the OR?
1: Um, if they had an ongoing, uh, if, if they became unstable or if they had an ongoing um, uh, transfusion requirement.
4: Good. And now angioembolization. You mentioned that as an option. Uh, what what would be the indications for angioembolization?
1: Uh, so if you had an active blush on your, on your CT scan.
4: Good. Um, so absite so exam, they give you the patient who's got a blush and they're hemodynamically stable. The answer they're generally looking for is angioembolization. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if it's spleen, liver, or kidney. That's usually the answer they're looking for. Um, Any other indications for angioembolization? Uh,
1: So if it's uh, in a place that's not easily reachable operatively, so uh,
4: pelvic injuries uh, would would be an indication. Good. And probably the only other ones would be some vascular complication of the injury, typically a pseudoaneurysm. Okay, abdominal stab wounds. So, so we we generally talk about abdominal stab wounds. We like to classify them by location because the I would say the location determines the workup. So, what are what are the general locations that you would you would distinguish for stab wounds? For abdominal stab wounds, yeah. uh,
2: right upper quadrant, potentially. Okay, so so
4: we'll say anterior abdominal, anterior abdominal, posterior abdominal flanking back flanking and back and then, and then the third one would be thoracoabdominal okay. or, or subcostal where you have to also worry about thoracic structures okay so abdominal stab wounds what would be your immediate criteria for surgery
2: uh, hypotension um, okay, if hemodynamic
4: the, instability
2: if they have a uh, succus or a, an organ protruding um, through the injury
4: okay so evisceration evisceration how about their physical exam peritoneal good so, peritonitis, evisceration, uh, hemodynamic instability. You know, obviously, if they have suckers coming from the wound, an obvious bowel injury. So, let's say they don't. How do you want to evaluate this person?
2: Um, so, if a hemodynamically stable patient with abdominal stab wound, um, some you can do a uh, local wound exploration, Good. depending on and, your ER. That's,
4: a, that's, I think, another common question. So, a local wound exploration, what are you looking for? And just in
2: Fascial penetrance. What
4: fascia? What abdominal wall fascia? It's a very specific layer that you're looking for. So anterior rectus sheath or posterior rectus sheath? Posterior rectus sheath. 50-50-90. Anterior rectus sheath. Yeah, so a local, okay. and this is this is often causing, a local wound exploration is looking for anterior rectus sheath penetration. Um, and, and the utility of it is if you do a local wound exploration and it's negative. So there's no anterior rectus perforation. What do you do next? Well, you can uh, observe those patients or you can CT them. Or you've, you've now convinced yourself it did not go any further than the anterior rectus sheath. Discharge them home. Yeah. So, so a, a true negative where you say I've explored it and it didn't perforate anterior rectus sheath is discharge them. The problem is what if it did perforate the anterior rectus sheath? And the reason, the reason we say it's not looking at the posterior rectus sheath is because you can't do that can't effectively at the bedside, you know, digging through the muscle. So really all you can do effectively is look at the anterior rectus sheath. Right. So now it's perforated the anterior rectus sheath. Now what should we do?
1: Uh, so those patients, you, you, if they're stable, you could certainly get some imaging, and you could certainly, if they're stable, observe with serial exams. Good.
4: And, and I think that's, the, that's probably one of the biggest points in that question, because the old answer used to be explore. anybody that had perforated, you explore them. That has now gone away now it is if they're examinable you can do serial clinical exams um, if they're not examinable that's where some people would probably say explore them or at least put a laparoscope in some people would say image them with a ct scan but, but again on the ab site it'll be if they're examinable it's going to be serial clinical exams okay flank stab wound little different what would you do for a flank or back stab wound and again, if they if they ask you this question, what's the answer they're looking for? A, a, a three phase CT. Good CT scan and the classic answer is the triple contrast oral, rectal, IV. Just because you, you can't assess retroperineal structures and that's what's at risk of being injured. So or co abdominal stab wound. So just so
1: everybody
4: with the triple contrast oral, rectal, and IV. Is yes, go for Although, do we really do that? Most people probably do. Most people now probably do oral and IV or rectal and IV. But uh, for again for the boards, the answer would be a triple contrast CT, okay? And then thoracoabdominal Thoracob- beyond, beyond the abdomen, what else are we concerned about? Um,
2: what are we going to image them with, or what are we concerned about? What injuries are you concerned oh. about? So you're concerned about a,
4: a pneumothorax, a hemothorax. Good. Uh, so you're concerned about the thoracic structures right. and, and diaphragm injuries. Diaphragm. If they give you a you know stab wound of the costal margin and they're stable and normal exam. And you send them home, you've you've missed the question. They're heading you towards. You still need to evaluate all those patients for a diaphragm injury, and it's always going to be a left-sided thoracoabdominal stab wound. And how do you do that? Um, I, I think the best way to evaluate that is laparoscopically. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. you do a laparoscopic exploration. Yeah. You can also do it thoracoscopically. Most would do it laparoscopically. Good. Okay, traumatic bowel injuries. How do, we, how do we generally categorize a traumatic bowel injury? You, can, you categorize it. It's a binary. So you're going for destructive or non-destructive? Yes, okay. exactly. So destructive or non-destructive. What's a destructive? Uh, generally, it's over 50% of the circumference Good. of the bowel. Or? Or um, uh, a devascularized portion. Good. Yeah, okay. So it's greater than 50% or devascularized. And quickly, the management of a destructive... Uh, for for
1: for for destructive, it's resection. Um, Good resection and diversion, or uh, I am sorry, resection primary anastomosis. Yeah, that and should then, be
4: that should be your default unless they give you some odd odd scenario, and yeah. that's for anywhere in the bowel, small bowel or colon, um, and non-destructive. Uh, generally, primary repair. Good primary repair, unless if they give you multiple in the same area, you probably resect that segment. Okay, what if now you are in the damage control setting? and you've got destructive bowel injuries
1: uh so if you're in damage control you just i mean you control uh control sepsis control bleeding so you staple mm-hmm. off things leave things in discontinuity leave the abdomen
4: open Good. so it's just you resuscitate st- you staple staple and you you don't do an anastomosis you don't do a primary repair you generally just staple the bowel off remove the injured segment and get out penetrating colon injuries what's our management for those again 2017 right so a
2: uh, a lot more of these are being primarily repaired um, okay. and so if
4: it's a non-destructive injury how can, about left colon versus right colon um it doesn't matter good doesn't matter anymore the, the answer should you're generally your answer is going to be a either a primary repair or it's going to be a resection and anastomosis Um, We don't do many ostomies for these anymore. Now you have the classic bucket handle injury, which is the injury of the small bowel where the mesentery has been torn, uh, but the bowel is intact. What are you going to do with that?
2: I would resect it and do a primary estomosis. The answer
4: is you resect that segment because it will look fine, but it's going to be ischemic, uh, and then it's going to perforate. Okay, so as long as we're in the abdomen... Okay, so retroperitoneal hematoma. Um, we talk about three zones: zones one, two, and three. And and what are those zones? What's zone one? So zone one is in the uh, midline
2: and contains the um, aorta and IVC or the primary so zone organs. one is central. Zone two. Zone two is the lateral retroperitoneal structures. Um, includes the kidney and colon.
4: Good. And zone three is the pelvis. Good. And, and the key there is you're worried about the major blood vessels in each zone, right? You want to prove there's an injury or there's not. So zone one, you're worried about aorta vena cava. Zone two, you're worried about the renal artery and vein. And Zone three, you're worried about iliacs. Okay, so now you have a penetrating injury that's got a hematoma, retroperitoneal hematoma. Zone one.
2: Zone one, you'd explore. Zone two. Zone two, um,
4: depending
2: you don't have, on... You don't have to think
4: about this. Penetrating, you explore. Zone three you explore good on the absite. site you explore all penetrating retroperitoneal hematomas now blunt so blunt you have a zone one hematoma blunt um you explore yeah again on the absite, site you would explore that because it's a it's a aortic or vena cave injury you have to rule out but now zone two or zone three
2: um, so zone two or zone three. This would depend on further imaging, and
4: you're in the does. OR. You're just you're looking at it.
2: So I would not explore. it.
4: Uh, well, when would and when wouldn't you explore it? So if it's expanding hematoma, good. I would explore. Yeah, if expanding it's or pulsatile hematoma, um, and if it's not expanding and non-pulsatile, I would leave it. Leave it alone because what is it in zone two? What's causing that?
2: Uh, renal artery, renal vein kidney it's a kidney, right? kidney so
4: by far okay. and away it's going to be a kidney lack that we know you don't if we know right. if you start exploring you're probably going to end up doing an nephrectomy right. and see. zone 3 what's causing that in blunt trauma uh, pelvic fracture yeah. which we also know you don't want to get into right. right so much lower suspicion for a true vascular injury in blunt and that's why we don't go into those other than zone 1's Okay, well, and as long as we mention pelvic fracture, so what are some of the associated injuries you always have to evaluate the patient for who has a significant pelvic fracture?
1: Uh, So you just have to think about what lives in the pelvis, so rectum, um, bladder,
4: vagina, um, urethra. Okay, good. So you, you have a patient who has an open book pelvic fracture and systolic blood pressure is 90
1: uh, so uh, those are typical. typically uh, with open-book pelvic fractures. You're talking about bleeding from veins, and they're usually easily compressed. So you want to do pelvic uh,
4: pelvic binders, slings um, to stabilize them. Um, Good. Intervention number one is you close the volume, so you place them in a pelvic binder or a sling or a wrap. Uh, and then what's your next step in the management?
1: Uh, generally, <laughs> you're taking that patient to the interventional radiology suite for angioembolization
4: good and if they give you a scenario where the patient is too unstable they're they're severely unstable you've put the binder on so you're going to the or to
1: pack the pelvis
4: yeah i think the, the answer today would be and what do you mean by pack the pelvis so laparotomy and pack the pelvis so you're, you're packing the uh, extra peritoneal space good so now there would be an extra peritoneal pelvic packing and probably then to angiography Okay, so speaking of pelvic massive hemorrhage, we'll talk about shock. Um, So what is shock? How would you define shock? Or how does ATLS define shock? So um, shock is when you have um, hyperperfusion to the organ system. Good. Good. So it's just it's end-organ hypoperfusion. It's not a blood pressure. It's not a lactate. Those are markers, but shock is end-organ hypoperfusion. So in trauma, we talk a lot about classes of hemorrhagic shock. Everyone has taken ATLS and had to memorize that painful table of, of class 1 through 4 shock, um, but that classifies it by the percentage of blood loss. Right. And and the simple system for remembering that is? Uh the tennis score system. Good. So how so do you do I, that? I might be able to figure
2: this one out. So it goes uh fifteen. Well what do you start at before fifteen?
4: Zero. So yeah, you're you start at zero. Love.
2: Mm-hmm. Um and then uh so class one would be uh fifteen percent body loss. Okay. It'd be zero to fifteen. Zero mm-hmm. to fifteen. Um class two would be um fifteen to thirty percent. Mm-hmm and then uh, class 3 would be uh, 30 to 45%. 30 to 40. 30 to 40.
4: Okay. And then um, greater than that would be class 4. Yeah. And and so like like you said I use the tennis system. You just you write down on your sheet of paper from top to bottom 0 15 30 game over or 0 15 30 40 game over. And then in between each of those numbers is class 1, class 2, class 3, class 4. And that's your that's your percentage of the blood you've lost. So, what's the first class where you develop hypotension? Uh, that's class three. Good. So, and 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 usually, if they're asking you a question about a class, they'll give you hypotension and ask you what that is, and that's that's class three. Um, and the earliest signs of shock, there's okay. usually two that they'll ask about:
1: uh, tachycardia, tachycardia, they'll ask about, and um, altered mental. Mm-hmm. So, altered mental, you shouldn't should get till you're three or four.
4: Uh, oh yeah, so uh, uh, decreased uh, pulse pressure, narrowed uh, pulse, pulse pressure. Yeah, yeah. so if they, if they give you a question about the earl, class one shock, it, the answer is either tachycardia or narrowed pulse pressure. All right. So and- they do have that in class one shock, zero to fifteen. They can get. I
2: thought you didn't have any signs in zero to fifteen percent. Well, the first
4: sign will usually be mild
2: tachycardia. Mild tachycardia. Yeah. Okay. So class two, I think, is when at least the ab site starts defining, you'll get the narrowed pulse pressure. Yep. Class and that's two really the only pulse pressure. And that's really the only that and tachycardia you'll see
4: in class two. Yeah. And usually the question is hypotension. And what okay. they're getting at is now you're in class three. Right. Okay. Um, okay. And now, and we touched on this earlier, you have a patient who's clearly perfusing their extremities and their systolic is 60. What's your uh, diagnosis? That's a uh, neurogenic shock. Good. That's spinal cord injury, uh, again, until proven otherwise. Okay. You mentioned damage control surgery. So we talk about the lethal triad or the triad of death, which is what? Um, it is hypothermia, coagulopathy, and acidosis. Good. And so if you're doing damage control surgery, we there's four phases of any trauma laparotomy. Um, and for damage control you only get to the first two and then you're done and what are those first two so you want to control the hemorrhage first and then uh, you want to control uh, sepsis or GI spillage good and then if you weren't in damage control phase three would be fully explore and diagnose all the injuries phase four is reconstruction so in damage control all you're doing is stop blood stop GI spillage and then temporary abdominal closure and then what do you do with the patient? Uh, you bring them back to the ICU and resuscitate them. Okay. And then um, at 24 hours,
2: you go back to the operating room if they're okay. stable. What about at 23? Um, you wait till 24.
4: <laughs> it's actually it's once they're once they're, they're stabilized there. and normalized. There there's no there's no time set. In fact, if they give you a question about that, and they'll give you choices of like you know when the patient's quite is corrected or at 24 hours, the answer is going to be when they're physiologically corrected. Okay, now they had their damage control procedure, and they're in the ICU, and you're worried about abdominal compartment syndrome. So, what would be some of the signs you're looking for?
1: Uh, so, you'll, uh, some of the first signs you'll see is for uh, is decreased urine output um, and increased
4: uh, peak pressures on your vent. Good, and and the increased peak pressures is the key. A lot of patients will have low urine output for various reasons, but when, they, especially on the ab site, they'll give you this. The patient's peak airway pressures are going up, and if you start to read that, the answer is abdominal compartment syndrome. And how would you confirm that? Uh, you can measure a bladder pressure. Good. You can measure a bladder pressure, and you can use the absolute bladder pressure. Generally, when we start to get above 20, we're worrying about compartment syndrome. Like we talked about with the uh, head bleeds, same thing with abdominal. You can also calculate the perfusion pressure. Um, but generally, a pressure above 20, if they start to have the other signs, especially elevated mean airway pressures, then that's abdominal compartment syndrome. And what are you going to do?
1: Uh, it's, uh, decompressive laparotomy.
4: Good. Yeah. Uh, that's the answer on the ab side, I would say. Uh, other than there's probably one scenario. So you have a burn patient. Who is developing abdominal compartment syndrome? You know, they've gotten their massive resuscitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you going for escar like es- or No, that oh, that's a separate area. So yeah. let's let's assume they don't have a circumferential chest wall burn. Um, But that's the scenario where they'll develop an abdominal compartment syndrome from just massive ascites building up. And so so the the preferred intervention there would be that you put a drain in and drain Hmm. the ascites. Any, Any other compartment syndrome, they give you the answer is laparotomy. Okay. We talked about damage control surgery. Now there's damage control resuscitation. So... You have a patient who's shot in the abdomen. Their systolic blood pressure is 80. The medics are bringing them in from the field. And the question is, how much fluid and what type should they give this patient?
2: This is similar to the treatment for rupturing aortic aneurysms now is the permissive hypotension. Um, the thought being that the more you, resusc- if you over them, it'll allow them to bleed easier. So what's your answer
4: going to be? To the medic. Uh, it's going to say gunshot wound of the abdomen, systolic of 80, and which of the following would you do? I would do you know, administer perm- 500 cc's, a liter, albumin, hep block IV. Um, I would do one liter. No, the, an- the answer is no fluid. No right? fluid. That, that's the in concept the pre-hospital of setting. Okay. hypotension. So it would be hep IV, you know, let them run hypotensive. Un- unless they're you know unless they have altered mental status, and then and you get them to the operating room, that's the concept of permissive. Is
1: that really going to be the answer on the app side? I feel like the answer they always they're still on the ATLS. You give two liters of fluid.
4: You think that's well for for blunt trauma, yeah. Okay. I, but if, if they're giving you a penetrating trauma and okay. the you know systolic is is eighty. And they're asking, and I especially think now, since okay. the damage control resuscitation studies have come out. I'm purposely missing
2: questions to highlight these uh, interesting <laughs> and controversial areas to help you guys in the ab sites. Hope you
4: appreciate that. Okay. And then blood products. So it's going to give you a choice of of resuscitating this patient. And it's going to give you, you know, a choice of give them some PRBCs now, um, give them some PRBCs, check coags, and then wait until they're back and then correct them, or it's going to give them some PRBCs and FFP and platelets up front. Uh, So yeah, we're going to start with uh, blood product
2: resuscitation in a penetrating injury, so So hypotensive patient. So um, you know, blood or platelets up front, and then FFP is generally the
4: uh, protocols I've seen. Yeah, so so the answer is going to be the one where you starting off giving them packed cells, FFP, and and some platelets, and not the we're going to give them six units of packed check coags and wait four hours and then start plasma. So that's that's called damage control or balanced resuscitation. All right, and and there was just a big study on this called the proper trial, which we don't need to get into, um, but that did show a decrease in bleeding deaths with a one to one resuscitation. Um, you might get asked about hemostatic adjuncts or, or drugs you can give to the bleeding patient. So if they give you a question and you come across it's multiple choice and one of the answers is factor seven, is that going to be the wrong answer or the right answer? I think that'll be the wrong answer. Good. So that, But that's one that will be in there as one of those wants to fake you. Factor seven has pretty much gone out of use for trauma. Um, but if they do give you a question about a bleeding trauma patient and is there anything pharmacology you can give them, uh, what would be the right answer? I, I think it's a TXA. Yeah, tranexamic um, acid. And um, that's for
2: fibrinolysis. Good. Um, specifically. And who would,
4: who would you give that to?
2: Um, the uh, massively bleeding uh, patient that's okay. had resuscitation.
4: And when would you give it to them? Early. Within the first hour, I think they say is improved survival. So it's within three hours. Three hours. So bleeding patient within three hours, tranexamic acid would be that would be the answer on the app site. It's been shown to have a survival benefit in the big study called the Crash Two trial. And what does that drug do?
2: It is a uh, plasminogen activator inhibitor. Okay, which does what? What does it do for you? So it.
4: Stops the breakdown of fibrin, essentially. Good. It stops you from breaking down clot, right? Because yeah. you you activate a hyperfibrinolytic response usually if you're massively bleeding. Okay. And how would you be able to tell if somebody <clears throat> was having massive fibrinolysis? Uh, then you'd need your TEG or your ROTEM. Okay. So so TEG and ROTEM has has become a hot topic in trauma. It has now reached the point where it's it's on board exams. It's on our surgical critical care and trauma exams. So. So, And a lot of people aren't real comfortable with reading tags. <clears throat> so, And you don't have to know a lot that's in-depth about reading a tag. Um, I, I think a, a general system that's easy to think about, the, they'll give you a lot of parameters that are confusing, R time, alpha angle, max amplitude. And, and for example, in the, when they give you R time, don't worry about the R part. Look at the second word of the parameter they're giving you. So the second word is either going to be time, angle, amplitude, or lysis, right? And so time. Think about time just like a PT or PTT, prothrombin time, partial thromboplastin time. That's telling you how long it takes you to start clotting, right? So the R time is just the time it takes you to start clotting. So if that's prolonged, then what would you do for that patient? Or what's their problem? They have a... uh platelet deficit or coagulation deficit? Yeah, they, they, ha- they have a clotting factor problem. Okay. So that's the, and that's the usual one. And what do you do with someone who's got an elevated INR? What would you give them?
2: PCC. Uh,
4: not not on no- novel anti-oral coagulants. Okay. FFP. Yeah. So that's the patient. So they've got a prolonged R time. You give them FFP. Angle tells you about the velocity of something, right? So that's just telling you how fast they're forming a strong clot. And so if they're if they're not forming a clot very quickly, their fibrin and fibrinogen isn't functioning. What are you going to give them? Uh, cryo. Good. That'd be the patient you give cryo. The maximum amplitude. So amplitude is the width of the graph, and that all that's telling you is the clot strength. So if their maximum amplitude is smaller, so they're not forming a strong clot or a platelet plug. What are you going to give them? Platelets. Good. And then the last parameter will be a measure of the lysis or how much fibrinolysis they're having. And that's typically an LY-30. And if they're having a lot of clot lysis, so their LY-30 is high, what would you give them? Uh, TXA. Good. And that's, that's the simple, I think, way to think about a tag.
5: This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag.
0: Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. <laughs>
5: And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty Ultra Strong trash bag.
0: Hefty, Hefty,
1: Hefty!
5: Ah, smell the difference. Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm and Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm, you can stay one step ahead of stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black bags.
4: All right, um, we'll, we'll move into I think the you know, last couple minutes of this, so. Kidney and bladder injuries. Uh, usual mechanism. These uh, usually blunt, blunt And especially for bladder, what's that usually associated with?
1: Uh, deceleration injuries with you know seat belts, car accident.
4: But what associated injury do they usually have? Uh, urethral injury, uh, pelvic fracture. And yes, that's and, almost okay. always a pelvic fracture, and they've got hematuria. Um, so will a bladder injury always have hematuria? A a true bladder injury, full thickness laceration should yes well a kidney injury always have hematuria not necessarily yeah so so a bladder injury if they do not have hematuria that essentially rules it out a kidney injury they can or they might not have hematuria because it would just take a while for the blood to get down to the bladder so when do you operate for a bladder injury or what type of bladder injury would you operate on
1: so if there's an intraperitoneal um uh uh, or spillage into the intraperitoneal space.
4: Good. And what about an extraperitoneal peritoneal injury?
1: Uh, those you can generally manage, uh, not
4: or with a Foley catheter drainage. Good. Uh, and I think for the absite, those would be the standard answers. Uh, ureteral injuries. So first off, uh, just a little anatomy. If if you were to tell someone how to find the ureteral mm-hmm. or how to find the ureter. Most reliable location in the abdomen?
1: Yeah, it's usually uh, at the pelvic brim along the iliacs when the uh,
4: internal and external iliac split. Good. Over top of it. It crosses over the front of the bifurcation of the iliac into the common, uh, or into the uh, internal and external iliac. Good. So management of ureteral injuries generally they'll give you if it's a proximal mid or distal injury Mm -hmm. so and the standard that they usually give you is a mid ureteral injury it's transected and how would you manage that
1: so if it's transected if it's a clean transection uh you can you know spatulate the ends perform a primary anastomosis over a double j stent
4: Okay, using what type of suture? Um, Absorbable suture. Yeah, remember, anywhere in the uh, urinary tract, so bladder, kidney, or ureter, it's always absorbable suture because you don't want stones to form. Okay, and you always want to do that repair over a stent. Um, Now they give you a distal ureteral injury, ureteral injury.
1: So those you can generally re-implant into the bladder. Um, You may have to mobilize a portion of the bladder, so is Hitch. Those type of things.
4: Good. If it doesn't reach the bladder, then you just bring the bladder to it, which the psoas is just you're bringing the bladder to the ureter and sowing it to the psoas. All right. You already mentioned urethral injury. So just real quick, the physical exam signs of a urethral injury. I've seen this on every test yep. I've ever taken. <laughs> uh, so the
2: the high the, the high points are the meatal blood, um, and then if they have any scrotal or perineal hematoma or high-riding prostate on the DRE.
4: Okay, and if you have those, what are you going to do?
2: You're going to do a retrograde urethrogram. Okay, uh, before you place a Foley, before you do anything else, as far as their urologic system
4: is concerned, that's that's your abside answer. All right, uh, real quickly on extremity trauma, we mentioned hard and soft signs of vascular injury. So what would the hard signs of a vascular injury be? And this is for extremity trauma.
2: Um, pulsatile bleeding. Good. Uh, expanding hematoma. Expanding or pulsatile hematoma.
4: Good. Absent pulses. Good. What else? A thrill. Outpatient or auscultation. Good. A brewery or a thrill. And um, that's it as far as I know. And, and some people include, well, some people include uh, unexplained anemia unexplained severe anemia okay. um, and then the other one would be uh just observed pulsatile bleeding from the wound how about soft signs so
2: a non-expanding hematoma uh, decreased pulses good um non-pulsatile bleeding mm-hmm. um
4: and then anything about location um if it's Near major vessels, yeah. So proximity injuries, so injury to a nearby nerve or a bone, like a mid femur fracture, you'd consider a superficial femoral artery injury. Okay, so you mentioned decreased pulses. So what would you consider decreased, Um, or how would we assess that? Doppler signals. I mean, so palpation
2: is traditional. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, I don't think. Is there any
4: number we can generate that'll Help us guide our an, an ABI. Management. Good. Yeah. And what would be concerning for you for an ABI? Um, less than point nine. Good. Or... Less than point nine is the indicate hard indication of you need vascular imaging. So uh, they'll often give you extremity injury and you have a strong palpable pulse and there's no there's no uh, active hemorrhage. Uh, you know, even they'll say gunshot wound to the thigh, but you have a strong palpable pulse and. They ask you what you want to do next, and the answer is not angiogram. It's not CT angio. If you have a normal vascular exam, you've essentially ruled out a significant vascular injury. Now, that's for extremity. So that's distal to the shoulder, distal to the hip. You know, you can have a subclavian injury where you can still feel a pretty normal pulse. But for extremity, the, the exam has really become king. If you have soft signs, what are you going to do? Uh, that's generally further imaging good yeah, that, that's an indication for the CT angiogram or standard angiogram and just what are the principles of management of the artery injury generally you know operative repair um Mm -hmm. is the standard
2: and if you can primarily repair it which is rare um then or you can use a the most common would be an interposition graft with the saphenous vein uh, harvested it's going
4: to be a reverse saphenous vein graft for an extremity arterial trauma um how about a vein injury um a vein injury many of them you can just ligate good it's if it's a simple laceration, you can do a primary repair. If it's anything above that, then ligation is fine, especially in the extremities. Um, anything else to consider? Now they give you the patient who had a popliteal artery and vein injury that you just fixed, and they're going to say any other any other treatments you would. So
2: depending on the time of ischemia you'd uh, want to do a fasciotomy good.
4: always consider fasciotomy for extremity vascular injury if they give you a pop artery and vein injury then the answer is fasciotomy <laughs> that's going to be the answer um and so and how would you do that fasciotomy we'll say for the calf
2: so you do a two incision uh on the medial and lateral aspect for compartment uh fasciotomy good and what are those compartments you have the um the lateral compartment yep. um Anterior compartment and you have the superficial um posterior compartment
4: and then the posterior. deep posterior compartment. Good. And which compartment are the blood vessels in? Deep compartment contains the popliteal yeah, artery. Deep deep posterior compartment. That's one of the ways you know you've opened it okay. as you're looking at those vessels. Okay. Uh well in first talking about hemorrhagic shock. Uh, I think we should clarify, again, the clinical signs of, of the different classes. We talked about class 1 through 4 and the, the tennis system of, of identifying the percentage of blood loss. So, so as we discussed, the first sign of hypotension is in which class? Class 3. Good. So, so that's, that's probably the most common question. Um, but for class 1, the initial clinical signs would be what? I believe it's just some anxiety... Yeah, exactly. So there's no tachycardia. There's no hypotension yet, at least in most patients. And then in class two is where you get the earliest clinical signs of hemorrhage, which would be what two factors. Is it uh, decreased pulse pressure and maybe tachypnea? Oh. Yeah, so narrowed pulse pressure and tachycardia. Oh, tachycardia. So, so oftentimes you'll get asked what's the earliest earliest vital sign change, and, and usually the answer is narrowed pulse pressure. Okay. Let's move on next uh, to finish out our abdominal trauma. Obviously, yeah, the the three rules of general surgery residency, John. Uh, don't screw with the pancreas. Yeah, I think So, one so of that's them. good to start with rule number three. Rule number three first. Uh, <laughs> so eat when you can, sleep when you can. Don't mess with don't the pancreas. Don't mess with pancreas. That's right. Okay, but we're gonna mess with the pancreas. So so we talk about pancreatic trauma, and I like to think about it as not-so-bad pancreatic injuries and bad pancreatic injuries, or the ones that are going to be a problem. And so what do you think the factors are that make a pancreatic injury a bad injury? So bad pancreatic injuries are going to be those that
3: have uh, issues with the main duct. Okay, so number one of
4: factor of are you going to manage this non-operatively or operatively is, is the duct injured. Good. Uh, the amount of uh, parenchyma that is violated or that is involved. Okay, that that's another factor, but yep. I wouldn't say that that would be a, a key factor. The next one would be location. Okay. So it would be bad and
3: good. So bad location, I'm guessing, would be the head of the pancreas, and uh, a better location would be a tail or body of the pancreas.
4: Good. And then probably the third factor is associated injuries. So so what's what's the associated injury you get with the pancreas that that really that bumps it up a grade? Uh, I. I think it would be a vascular injury that would be. That would also be bad. But okay. what's right next to the pancreas and the C loop? Oh well, the any injury to the duodenum would yeah, be. Yeah, so a, when you have a associated problem. duodenal injury, that makes it that's probably your most complex pancreatic injury. Okay, so let's just talk about operative management. You have a pancreatic laceration, and you were exploring the abdomen, and you see this laceration at the tail. There's clearly no duct injury. Uh, clearly, no
2: duct injury, laceration at the tail. Um, you have two options here. Um, you could just lay drains and get out of there versus a distal
4: pancreatectomy. Okay, and on the ab site which one are you going to do? Um, no ductal injury. No ductal injury. I'm just going to lay drains. Good. Drain it only. Now you have a distal pancreatic injury with a duct injury.
2: Then I would perform the distal pancreatectomy.
4: Okay, with or without splenectomy? Uh, in a trauma situation, I would probably do a splenectomy. Yes. So that would be your answer, except in a certain scenario that we'll, we'll talk about next. Okay. Now you have an injury to the pancreatic head. Laceration of the pancreatic head. The laceration of the pancreatic head.
2: Um, is there ductile injury? We'll say no. No ductile injury. So I will uh, lay drains and okay. get out of there.
4: And, and now there is a ductal injury.
2: I, I probably will still lay drains Good. and get so, out of there. So you
4: probably didn't need to ask that. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I think we talked about this in morning report the other day. The the quote from Top Knife about pancreatic injuries. Um, you
2: treat it like you eat a crawfish, so you eat the tail and suck the head. Good.
4: And I think that's a good principle to follow. So resect the tail, if there's a especially if there's a ductal injury, drain the head. The only situation where especially on the ab side, I think you would do a spleen preserving distal pancreatectomy would be in what patient population? In a child? Yeah. So if they give you a child who is stable and and they will have to give you that uh... then you can do a spleen preserving distal pancreatectomy if they give you a child who's unstable which they often will just because they know you'll want to try and save the spleen because it's a kid if they're unstable the, in- the answer is still do a distal pancreatectomy splenectomy okay and then real quickly how do we surgically expose the pancreas and we don't need to get into details but there's maneuvers to expose the head the body and the tail So, we'll start with exposing the head. This is the easy one.
3: So, you typically would cocorize the duodenum to expose the head of the patient?
4: Good. So, you have to mobilize usually the hepatic flexure of the colon and then cocorize the duodenum. You can expose and and palpate the entire head. Now, the body.
3: The body, I think you're uh, finding your SMV as your landmark and following that. Uh, to the body of the pancreas, just to to dissect that plane between the body and the. the so, what vessel. do you have to
4: open to expose the pancreas?
3: You have to get in your lesser
4: sac. So, how do you do that? What do you have to divide?
3: Uh, you come through your your greater omentum. Yeah. So you divide the gastro sac.
4: So you widely open the gastrocolic ligament, and now you're looking at the body of the pancreas. And where is your avascular plane for mobilizing the pancreas? Inferior border or superior border?
3: It's in the inferior border. Yeah,
4: inferior border is completely avascular, so that's always where you mobilize. And then exposing the tail of the pancreas. Uh,
3: exposing the tail of the pancreas, you're going to bring down your splenic flexure, uh, and it should be
4: right there. Well, what do you have to mobilize up usually to fully mobilize the tail? Um, what comes along with the pancreatic tail? The spleen. Yeah, so, so usually you have to mobilize the spleen. Take down the lateral attachments, mobilize the spleen medially, that will lift up the tail. Also known as the Aird Maneuver, A-I-R-D, a little piece of trivia. (laughs) Um, Okay, uh, compartment syndrome. We talked about the leg and the calf yesterday, which is the most common. One other question you might get that we'll run through quickly is the forearm. So forearm, how many compartments? We have two compartments in the forearm. Okay. There's actually three. Oh. There's two that matter. Okay. Okay. So what are the compartments? The two that
3: matter are the anterior and the posterior compartments.
4: Yeah, or extensor and flexor or dorsal and volar. And then there's a third compartment that's known as the mobile wad, which is essentially the brachioradialis muscle. And the only two you need to open are the extensor and the flexor compartments. And, and I think that would be the only thing you would get asked about compartment syndrome. So we will we will uh, finish off with our uh, the main part of our trauma session with at the end of ATLS, you always get the two lectures on special populations. And these always are favorites for the boards. One is pediatric trauma patient. The other is the pregnant trauma patient. I think every AB I ever took had at least one or two questions on each of those. So the nice thing is you can usually predict what they're going to ask. There's a, very, there's a very finite amount of questions they can ask. So pediatric trauma. So one of the things they talk about is treat pediatrics just like adult, but then there's a whole talk on how they're different. <laughs> so so airway differences in the pediatric patient. What are the differences in terms of the airway in the pediatric patient? Anatomic differences. Um, with getting
2: an airway, they have a larger occiput, so um, sometimes
4: you have to put some
2: towels under the chest to elevate okay, the neck. Um, they have. Um, A smaller airway, obviously, with a narrow cricothyroid. Smaller smaller and shorter
4: airway. Um, Size of the tongue? Size of the tongue is larger. Good. And position of the airway. Is it more anterior than adults or more posterior? It's more anterior. Good, which means you have to pull up harder when you're doing direct laryngoscopy. Okay, you're going to intubate a kid for trauma. What are you going to intubate them with? cuffed or uncuffed tube? An uncuffed tube. Okay, that has actually changed. It is now a cuffed tube. And, and essentially anything but a baby, we now use cuff tubes. You know, the, they're low pressure, very safe cuff tubes now. You don't get necrosis like we did with high pressure tubes. So the answer for pediatric trauma now is a cuff tube. So that was the concern before was necrosis of the trachea Yeah, because kids? The, the cuffs were much higher pressure cuffs. Okay. Um, but now it, it's a cuff tube, and you want to fully protect the airway. And how would you estimate the size of the tube you're going to need? It's one of those annoying formulas. I like those little charts they have in the ER. Uh, Good. that That's your best answer is use the Breslow tape Breslau. in clinical practice. But on your ab site, they're probably going to ask you to name a size tube. So, so there's one easy way is you look at the width of the uh, patient's pinky nail bed and, that, and find the tube that's that same width. Um, If you're going to just go by age, there's a formula. Yeah, so the formula is, it's usually age in years divided by 4 plus 4. Some formulas have adopted that to age divided by 4 plus 3 for cuff tubes, but but most of us use the age divided by 4 plus 4. So, for example, for the 4-year-old, that would be a 4 divided by 4 is 1 plus 4, so a size 5 cuffed endotracheal tube. All right. So, what problems can you have with innovating a kid? You can mainstem. So, right mainstem innovation. Right. That's a very common one. They'll give you that the patient has no breast sounds on the right, and what are the answers? The answer is you pull back the tube right. first before you put a chest tube in, um, and then you innovate a kid, and now his heart rate is forty, as they're doing the direct laryngoscopy.
3: So they're just much more sensitive to the manipulation of the...
4: Yeah, bradycardia during lar- direct laryngoscopy is pretty common. So most algorithms either premedicate with... Bradycardia to be atropine. With atropine, or yeah. you always have it standing by to give if they develop bradycardia. Okay, pediatric response to hemorrhage compared to adults? So uh,
3: these patients uh, can compensate really well in the beginning and... Uh, where other, where, uh, a typical adult patient would not be able to compensate, and you're going to see clinical signs earlier. With an adult, you won't see those in, in a pediatric patient, which means that when they do crash, they crash hard.
4: So what is a pediatric patient going to do as they're bleeding, vital signs-wise?
3: They're going to remain m- mainly stable
4: and, and tachycardic. So, good. So they get tachycardic. They get tachycardic, tachycardic, more tachycardic, and then they fall off the cliff. Um, now you want to bolus this patient. So how do you bolus the pediatric trauma patient? So, and we'll start with crystalloid.
3: So with a crystalloid bolus, it's uh, actually simpler, I think, than the adult, just 20 cc's per kg. Good. And you can do that twice.
4: Okay. And now you want to give them
3: blood products. So I just half that, which would be 10 cc's. Excellent. 10 cc's
4: per kilogram for blood products. Okay. And what should always be on the differential diagnosis? in the pediatric trauma patient.
3: Well, uh, whenever you have a pediatric patient coming to the
4: emergency room, you have to be concerned about uh, non-accidental trauma. Good. And, and that's especially for head trauma, uh, for head bleeds, especially in babies and younger children. Always remember to keep that on your differential. Okay, now we'll move on to the pregnant trauma patient. So there's a whole bunch of physiologic changes that we get with pregnancy. There's really only a couple that are really relevant to trauma. So the first one is what happens to their circulating blood volume? They have an increase in their circulating blood volume. Okay. And their hematocrit? It's actually less. Okay. So they have a physiologic dilution or anemia. How about changes in their respiratory status? Uh, They have a... They have increased respirations
2: Mm -hmm. and a decreased tidal volume. Okay. So what will that do to their
4: acid-base status? Um, So they will actually be uh, respiratory alkalosis. Good. And so how does that affect you in terms of your trauma management or looking for signs of respiratory failure? Um, Potentially,
2: you might be reassured um, by either the CO2 values on ABG or... um, on the acid-base status, thinking that they're not as acidotic as they may be.
4: Yeah, so would be. so a CO, PCO2 of 45 would probably not raise many flags in a normal person, but in a pregnant patient whose baseline is 35, that right. may represent respiratory failure. Okay, so this patient is comes in and they're hypotensive, and she's seven months pregnant. So I'm going to have do do them positioning uh, her lay on their left lateral uh, decubitus to take the pressure off the ivc good so you want to put them left side down take the pressure off the ivc and this patient had abdominal trauma and you do your workup and you know she has some injuries let's say there's a pelvic fracture baby looks okay and anything else now we want to consider
2: um, right, so I'm concerned about uh, placental abruption in a trauma patient. Okay, uh, has a very high mortality for both the child and the mother. Um, so I would do the blood test, the Kleihauer
4: Betke test, where you test for fetal blood within the maternal uh, circulation. Okay, and and not only placental abruption, any significant abdominal trauma can cause some degree of maternal fetal hemorrhage. Okay, so the Kleihauer Betke test is looking for fetal blood cells in maternal circulation. Okay. And how do you use that? What, does that? what does that change for you? I think you would uh, be uh, lean more towards uh,
2: observation with fetal monitoring in a, in a situation that you had a positive
4: test. Okay, but does that drive any intervention you would do um, if you found fetal maternal hemorrhage? I, I would do a transvaginal ultrasound um, to evaluate the placenta. Any medication you might administer? The Rogam. Okay. Who are you going to give that to? So a negative mother, because if she gets exposed to an RH-positive blood cells from the fetus, she's going to develop antibodies, right? Right. And then the concern is the next pregnancy that is an RH-positive fetus, those antibodies are going to be attacking, right? So you want to prevent her forming those anti-RH antibodies. So any RH-negative mother who you strongly suspect had major abdominal trauma and fetal maternal hemorrhage or a positive Becky test should get rogam. all right well, there's a lot of stuff in the literature about scanning pregnant patients um, what are the actual risks of ct scanning the pregnant trauma patient
3: so the what i always think is that if you feel like you need to ct scan the mother then do it good uh, the risk of one ct scan a total by ct scan for a pregnant patient is relatively low over the course of their life and the risk to the pregnant or to the to the baby is
4: is also very low okay so what are the risks to the baby there's really two categories of risk
3: so i think the risk that a lot of people are concerned about or thinking about is the teratogenicity of good of uh, and then the and when development would, when of, would that happen That would happen at that time and would be.
4: uh, But what stage of a of a developing fetus? Oh, sure. In the first trimester of of the pregnancy. So if they're past the first trimester, you're not worried about about developmental defects from radiation. Um, Now, what about any other any other so, the, this any age the at any age,
3: they are at increased risk for developing malignancy down the road from radiation exposure. Good.
4: And what do we say that risk is about? It's less than one percent, I think. yeah, we generally it's one in a thousand. We say it increases their risk by one in a thousand for a future cancer. Um, but you're exactly right. if If the patient needs to be scanned, then you scan them and and the risk of one CT scan is pretty negligible. Okay, and then last question: Who needs admission for fetal monitoring? So, uh,
3: any any abdominal trauma or trauma to the area of the uterus is a patient that I'm going to want to admit and and have continuous fetal monitoring on. I believe.
4: Okay, but do you have any criteria based on where they are in their pregnancy? So, but so in general, you really only need to do fetal monitoring on. Patients where you're going to do some intervention. So basically, the fetus has to be past the point of viability if they have early pregnancy or early labor and delivery. So generally, it's 24 weeks if they're at 24 weeks or greater. Then you usually admit them for at least 24 hours of fetal monitoring. If they're less than 24 weeks, you might still be admitting them, but there's not a lot of whole, there's not a whole lot of reason to do continuous fetal monitoring. Okay, so 24 weeks is the cutoff. Yes, there. 24 weeks is the cutoff, and and that will probably get shorter as we get better at keeping premature babies alive. But but as of right now, it's 24 weeks. Okay. So so what we're going to do right now is with the last 10 minutes we're going to do trauma quickfire round, a new feature that I'm introducing. <laughs> so so we talked about how you want to look for those buzzwords and you kind of know what the answer is a lot of times before you get to even the answer choices. So I'm just going to read you some, some phrases taken in isolation and you tell me what the answer to the question is. There's no discussion, there's no explaining, there's no asking for more information, okay? All right, you have a trauma patient and you're in their chest, they've arrested and there's Bubbles in the coronary vessels. What's your diagnosis? Neither one of you can answer. You see air bubbles in the coronary vessels. Air embolism? Air embolism. Good. And if they're in the coronary vessels, it's usually a left sided one from a pulmonary injury. Okay. You have an MVC patient who has a lumbar chance fracture and a seatbelt sign. Pancreatic injury.
3: I'd also be worried about a missed viscus injury.
4: Good. And, and actually, in that scenario, the answer is going to be a viscus injury. That's the setup for a viscus injury. Now you have a kid with a handlebar below to his abdomen. A pancreatic injury. Or? A duodenal. Good. That's pancreatic or duodenal hematoma. See? You guys are great at this. Left thoracoabdominal stab wound. Has a negative fast exam, a completely benign abdominal exam. What else are you worried about? Diaphragm. Good. That's the patient who, even if you don't think they have anything else, they should probably have a laparoscopy to look for a diaphragm injury. All right. Posterior knee dislocation. Popliteal artery disruption. Excellent. Patient found down was lying for 24 hours on their back, and their creatinine is 3.5, and they're oliguric. So I'm worried about rhabdomyolysis. Excellent. You have a tracheostomy patient who's had a trach for a month. The nurse reports 10 cc's of bright red blood came from it and was suctioned out and then stopped. So I'm worried about a
3: tracheoenominate fistula.
4: Good. And that would be a sentinel bleed, which you don't want to wait for the real thing. Okay. You have a severe TBI patient, and the sodium is up to 155. And they're making 5 liters of urine. Uh, That's diabetes insipidus. Good. And bonus for the treatment. Desmopressin. DDAVP. Excellent. Okay. Now your patient is paralyzed from the waist down and has no cremosteric reflex. A spinal shock. Okay. Now they're paralyzed from the waist down and they have a cremosteric reflex. They're paralyzed. Yeah. yeah. So they're out of spinal shock and their deficits are probably permanent. Okay. You have a stab wound to the abdomen, a benign exam, but there is eviscerated omenum. I need to do an
3: exploratory laparotomy in that patient.
4: Evisceration is a criteria for laparotomy. You have liver bleeding that continues, and it's unchanged after a Pringle maneuver.
3: Then I can definitively say that I have...
4: What's your injury? Hepatic vein injury. Good. Or? IVC. Retrohepatic vena cava. That's the classic retrohepatic vena cava. You have a chest x-ray that has an apical cap. I have a blunt thoracic injury. Blunt thoracic Aortic injury. Aortic injury, good. You have major bleeding during your neck exploration that it's not coming from the carotid or jugular. There's arterial bleeding coming from posterior. Vertebral artery. Excellent. Okay. You have a stab wound to the flank, and I'm telling you there's an injury to some structure. What structure is it? Kidney. Flank or back. Good. It's going to be kidney. Diaphragm. Colon. Colon. Kidney and colon. Those are the two big ones, and that's why we do the triple contrast, right? Okay. Um, you have a major trauma patient. You get a tag, and it shows an elevated LY30 of 10%, and the normal is 3%. So this is high lysis. Fibro. So what's the answer going to be? And they need... Um, they need TXA. Good. Tranexamic acid. Excellent. Um, a lot of times they talk about getting exposure to vessels, and there's a gateway structure that you have to divide. So what's the gateway structure to the carotid bifurcation? The facial vein. Good. Common facial vein needs to be divided. What's the gateway, stru- gateway structure to the great vessels and the aortic arch? So you did a median sternotomy, and you have to expose the great arch vessels. Innominate vein? The innominate vein. Yep, innominate vein. You have to either retract it or divide it. Okay. He, patient has hematemesis two weeks after a motor vehicle crash with a grade 4 liver lack. Um, a biliary uh, fistula to the hepatic artery. Okay. So you have hemobilia. Hemobilia. And bonus for the treatment. Uh, angiographic embolization. Excellent. Okay. You have an open pelvic fracture, and the patient has a big, complex perineal wound. Colostomy. Excellent. Diverting colostomy. All right. Gunshot wound to the pelvis. Patient has a benign abdominal exam, but you do a rigid proctoscopy in the OR, and you see a hematoma in the rectal wall. Exploratory laparotomy. And what are you going to do during your laparotomy? So it's in the extra rectum, and it's just a hematoma. What's the most important thing you're going to do for that extra peritoneal rectal injury? Colostomy. Diversion. Okay. Yeah. So, And that's a common one they'll give you, and you'll hem and hawk, because it's a hematoma. Right. Yeah. In fact, all you need to do is a colostomy. You can just do a laparoscopic colostomy, and that's narrow.
5: Okay.
2: Well, thank you, Dr. Martin, for um, this hour-and-a-half pimp session that we hope will be beneficial to all of our uh, colleagues out there, and the things we do for our behind-the-knife listeners is uh, go to all extremes
1: yeah i can't thank you enough dr martin you've always been a great friend of the program and i just encourage everybody to uh follow dr martin on twitter it's uh, at doc martin doc martin 22 doc martin 22 uh and check out these trauma casts uh i can't speak highly enough of it
4: yep thanks a lot and uh good luck to everyone on the app site remember re- read the question read all the answers but but look for those keywords, and a lot of times you'll know the answer before you get there. And, and you'll often have a first reaction of this is the right answer, and usually you're right. So don't start looking at some other details and then try and convince yourself otherwise. If you have that gut reaction, that's usually the right answer.
1: Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review.
5: you can stay one step ahead of stinky and for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty, large black bags.
0: This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet, it's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com.
5: Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a US-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone